0: Hi, and welcome to Terra Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, biodiversity, agriculture, development, and many more. Today's guest is Dr. Debisi Araba. DebC is a public policy and strategy specialist, and is currently the Managing Director at the Africa Green Revolution Forum, AGRF, which is a premier catalytic multi-partner platform for Food and Agriculture Transformation in Africa. He is a recognized thought leader across the African agriculture sector. Prior to joining the EGRF, he led the International Center for Tropical Agriculture's work in Africa as the Africa Region Director. He holds an M.Sc. in Clean Technology from the University of Newcastle upon Tyne, a doctorate degree from Imperial College London, and a Master in Public Administration from the Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. I am Kizi Imanyan and I'll be your host for today. Hi, DBC, Welcome to our show. We're truly honored to have you with us. I'm going to get started by asking you this. Can you take us through your career arc and was there a defining moment in your journey towards a more coherent understanding of food security and sustainability?
1: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure uh, joining you this morning. And greetings from Nairobi, Kenya. Wow. I don't know how much time you have. I'll be as brief as I can. (laughs) I have an undergrad degree in in physical geography. And to be fair, when I went in, I chose the course specifically because I I had an affinity for the environment. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but geography was broad enough as an undergraduate program to give me a a solid base. But I would say towards the end of my four-year undergraduate program, I knew I wanted to work in sustainable development. And so I reached out to a a few senior members of faculty, and during conversations with them, I gravitated more towards renewable technologies, clean technologies, and I came across a brochure from the University of Newcastle at the time. So my undergraduate program was at the University of Ibadan in Nigeria. I came across a brochure from the University of Newcastle, UK, and they had this interesting program called an MSc program in clean technology. And it was a a program that gave you a foundational grounding in clean and renewable technologies, but also business management. So the business of of sustainable development. And so we had a lot of career talks and seminars by leading global business leaders and thought leaders and engineers and scientists in uh, renewables and sustainable development. Anyway... I then chose to do a, a final project on making a business case for recycling because at the time, the United Kingdom and, of course, the rest of the European Union, they had a, a legal framework. In the UK, it was called the LATS Agreement, the Landfield Allowance Tax Scheme, where they were trading the amount of the volume of recyclable materials that each county in the United Kingdom could send to landfill. So that got me into waste management, so to speak. Now, as I was wrapping that up, I worked for a year as a senior consultant with the city council in Newcastle. And towards the end of my time there uh, as a consultant, I had written to a few universities, pitching ideas for a PhD program in waste management. Again, I lived in Lagos, I grew up in Lagos, uh, Nigeria. And at the time, plastic waste was a menace clogging drains causing flooding of course leading to the sort of second third order effect of creating a public health crisis increasing the the prevalence of malaria because you had a lot of stagnant water pools of water which was a fertile breeding ground for mosquitoes and so i was accepted and invited to take on a phd at imperial college which i started in 2006 and the basic premise of my phd was Why do we have failed waste management programs and policies? And so I did a historical analysis of of waste management in, in Nigeria going into the 1800s. And historically, I found out that we actually never had good, sustainable, sound waste management policies ever in Lagos for different reasons.
0: Right. And so my
1: curiosity sort of powered me through the PhD. I finished that with bold ambitions to come back to Nigeria, to reform the environmental management, waste management space. My focus really was on environmental policy, looking at the policy uh, context of decision-making. And I had a serendipitous encounter with a minister of agriculture who had just been appointed in Nigeria. And out of curiosity, I asked him, what was his vision for his tenure as minister? And he took me on this really vivid journey. I mean, he painted a picture that was so vivid in my mind, I still remember it like it was yesterday. He shared his vision, his ambition, his goals. That man is now the president of the African Development Bank, a good friend of mine, Mi Miyadishino. And after the conversation, I knew I had to work for him. And so I didn't know how to pivot from a curious question to how do I support you on this, on this journey. But as uh, fortune would have it, he asked me to join his team as his environmental policy advisor. And so I did. Uh, started in late 2011, moved to Nigeria in 2012, and took on additional portfolios as personal assistant uh, and senior policy advisor, uh, senior technical advisor to the Minister of Agriculture in Nigeria. And that's where I engage with the agriculture sector, I would say, from a policy perspective. But my Damascene moment happened, I would say, at some point in 2013. We were driving in the northwest of the country, in rice fields. And I was just looking all around me and there were people who would probably never have even seen their state capital, talk less of the federal capital of Nigeria. Yeah, But people were thriving economically because of sound public policies of creating improved efficiency for distributing input subsidies. So we had uh, come up with a mobile-based electronic wallet system for improving the efficiency of uh, input subsidies. So farmers were getting access to improved seed varieties, access to fertilizer for the first time in their lives. They were getting connected to markets. Lives were being transformed. I mean, I could see this change in real time. It revealed to me the core power of agriculture to transform lives and by extension, transform economies. So yeah, that's the journey, I suppose. There's a lot more to say, but that was the moment that got me to the realization of of the transformative power of of the agriculture sector.
0: I find it so interesting. You completely, in that sense, pivoted, right? And all because you met somebody who inspired you in that sense and gave you the the vision that you were looking for at some level as well. So I, I find very, very interesting. You've talked about your background. So can you tell us more about your organization, Africa Green Revolution Forum? What are the key challenges it is facing? Are these different from COVID times? If they're different, please tell us more about it. But please start off by telling us more about your organization as well.
1: Yes. So the AGRF has a, a unique history. It started in between 2006 and 2008. It began as the Africa Green Revolution Conferences. It used to be held in Oslo, in Norway, for the first three years. And through discussions with Mr. Kofi Annan, the late Kofi Annan, former Secretary General of the United Nations, he instigated a process to bring that platform to the continent of Africa. And so the first AGRF summit was held in Ghana, in Accra, in 2010 then under the leadership of President Atta Mills of Ghana. And the HRF is a platform. It's a multi-stakeholder platform. It's held annually. So since 2012, it's held annually in cities across the continent. It brings together absolutely everybody involved in agriculture and food systems. So the political leaders, heads of states, ministers, brings business leaders at all scales, all the way from smallholder farmers to large-scale commercial agribusinesses, development partners, leaders of development partner organizations, leaders of research organizations, thought leaders, political, non-governmental organizations, youth organizations, women-led organizations. Everybody who is involved, who has a stake in agriculture and food systems is involved in the AGRF. And by extension, that literally means everybody, right? Because one of the few things that connects us as a global community of living, breathing humans, is food. We all need food to survive. So everyone's involved in HRF, and HRF is aligned to, now we have a a five-year strategy aligned to helping African economies achieve the goals of the Malabo Declaration, but also the Africa Union Agenda 2063, and of course, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So We're helping economies to thrive. So we really are the partner for prosperity in Africa.
0: What are the key challenges you're kind of facing? And are these different from before COVID? Or is it similar kind of challenges? Or has COVID changed the nature of how you're functioning?
1: Right. The way we function is the same. I would say the challenges that we, we are addressing might be slightly different. But in a broader context, maybe not necessarily so. So COVID, a pandemic has hit once in a generation type of event. Yeah. But because of the, the way the world is now globalized, we have all these sensitivities to supply chains. So what happens to consumers in Japan can affect what happens to producers in Namibia, for example. Now, the way the pandemic has hit agriculture and food systems, it's not just one part of the system. So it's not just production it's everything. So it's production, it's distribution, it's processing, it's consumption, it's retail. We are rethinking, well, not necessarily rethinking, but the entire scope of agriculture and food systems has been affected by the pandemic. Now, that brings the wider question or context of resilience to the fore. Previously, we would talk about climate change as the existential threat to mankind and to agriculture and food systems. But this just amplifies the need for building resilient agriculture and food systems. A pandemic, yes, we didn't expect it, but the more robust and resilient our systems are, the easier it would be for the systems to absorb these shocks and bounce back to productivity. So 2020 will go down as uh, maybe not a, an annus horribilis, you know, but it will be one for the ages. I think the the knock-on effect, the domino effect of how the pandemic has affected the global economy and how we respond to this is left to be seen. Yes, production has shrank. Demand has shrank. I mean, I was looking at the news today and I saw that there are projections for the South African economy to shrink by as much as 40% as a result of COVID-19 and other external factors. And I think, goodness. What's the impact on the global economy? We will only begin to find out in the first, second quarters of 2021. But without analyzing COVID-19, I would say we still need to eat. We still need to feed the world. We're still addressing all the challenges that we had pre-pandemic. We have climate change. Climate change isn't taking a breather or taking its knee off our neck. We still have to address how we produce healthy, safe, nutritious, affordable, accessible food for the world's population and address all these other external factors and ensure that those who are involved in agriculture and food systems are thriving economically. So agriculture is quite complicated. You know, it's not just basically producing the food. You know, it's how you finance that. It's the policy frameworks around creating the enabling environment. It's how you create jobs, stable, lasting, sustainable jobs. It's how you ensure equality and equity, gender equality, across the spectrum of economic opportunities. It's also how you create opportunities for the youth. Africa is the youngest, has the youngest population. We will have millions more coming into the labor market. How do you ensure that you create economic opportunities for the teeming masses of youth uh, across the continent? It's not my vision to see millions of youth tilling the soil on farms. I don't think that's the glorious vision I have for agriculture and food systems in Africa. What I would like to see is millions more working higher up the value chain, working in mechanization, working on research, working in retail, working on processing, working on logistics, distribution, et cetera. So agriculture and food systems, I think there are many more opportunities beyond the farm. And so our focus shouldn't be to sort of funnel millions of youth onto farms, because as we adopt more modern technologies, and improve productivity, there will be fewer labor opportunities directly on the farm. But in the agro-allied sector, meaning the economic sectors allied to agriculture, there will be millions of more jobs, or the potential is there to create millions of more jobs.
0: Which brings me to climate-smart agriculture, and you've you've touched upon this briefly as well because you talked about your involvement in the formulation of the Global Alliance for Climate-Smart Agriculture, Right. So, there's an emphasis not simply on sustainable agriculture, but also on increasing agriculture productivity. Now, climate change is really making the situation worse. You have monsoon unpredictability, you have drought, and now locusts. Good Lord. Yeah. I think the last thing anyone expected to hear about in 2020, on top of everything else, was locusts, right? Now, it sounds simplistic when I say it, but with tech and data, can I resolve this issue? And what steps can I need to be taken so that agriculture as a sector doesn't suffer? with the effects of climate change in
1: the future right that's a really tough one yes again uh, sort of another part of my life i was one of the or amongst the team that that helped to design develop and found the global alliance for climate smart agriculture this was launched during uh, the climate week during the un general assembly in 2014 i believe now on climate change I have to come back to it. Climate change is an existential threat, not just to the agriculture sector, but to mankind. So in addition to figuring out how we ensure that we continue to grow food or produce food in a way that meets our needs as a growing populations across the world, we also need to ensure that we're keeping the environment in a, in a way that is conducive for mankind to thrive on the planet. So speaking specifically about the agriculture sector, a lot of research is going into building resilience into not just the production capacity, but also the wider food systems. So I'll give you examples of where uh, research or investments are going into research. Investments are going into breeding more resilient crop varieties, creating more animal breeds that are more tolerant with higher productivity. One of the big investments have gone into uh, staple crops like maize for drought tolerance, uh, rice for flood tolerance and drought tolerance, beans for heat tolerance. Of course, again, when we talk about climate change for the agriculture sector, you can think about it in, uh, along two dimensions. Uh, you can think about the temperature variability, but also precipitation variability. So you're either having too few volumes of rainfall or too much rainfall, which can lead to flooding. Yeah. Uh, or you get the temperature too cold or too hot for crops to thrive, right? So, and of course, there, there's then the second order effect of climate change, because that then creates a breeding ground, depending on, on the climate conditions that are changing. It's then a conducive environment for new pests and diseases to thrive. So pests and diseases that previously wouldn't have thrived in any particular area would then thrive because the climate variables are changing and becoming more conducive for them to proliferate and spread. So a lot of research is going on. It's a moving target because climate isn't something we can control now. The best we can do in our understanding as bodies of scientists is to ensure that we reduce the contributing factors, right? So we have the two-degree initiative looking at capping the global... Temperature increase by no more than two degrees. And so looking at what investments we need to put downstream to ensure that we're not exacerbating or accelerating the pace of climate change. Beyond the production sphere of agriculture and food systems in, say, distribution and processing, we are investing in improving logistics, transportation, cold storage. One example is, of course, solar-powered off-grid storage systems. There's a startup in Nigeria called Cold Hubs. And I know there are a few other startups around the world focused on similar business models. But I think the idea is basing your your business decisions on science-based innovations. And so a lot of investments are going into breeding crops for resilience, investing in technologies that will reduce uh, post-harvest loss. So increasing how much food we produce, increasing productivity, and also improving global supply chains or global chains. Some people might call it glocal, how to shorten the chain. Sometimes you have foods produced hundreds or thousands uh, of miles away and consumed around the world. I am a big advocate for a globalized agriculture economy, but I'm also an equally big advocate for local economies to increase and maximize agriculture productivity locally. So, Both are not in competition with each other. I think there's so much more we can do to improve productivity. So in Africa, a lot of investments going on in creating that whole public sector-enabled, private sector-led process of agriculture transformation to ensure that we maximize the dividends of agriculture and food systems on the continent.
0: All of this sounds really amazing. That's the thing for me as somebody who, who is on the periphery and learning more about this and what is actually happening. Because you're typically reading news reports, right? And they always report on the negative. So when you hear something like this is happening, it really gives you hope that there is things that are going to happen. And for the generations that are going to come, they're going to benefit from what is happening right now. That sounds really, really great. Can you talk about your role as a member of the Malabo Montpellier panel of experts? What purpose does the panel serve?
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, That's, I suppose that's another hat I wear. I'm a member of the uh, Malabo Montpellier panel. It's a group of, I think there's 17 of us, leading experts drawn across Africa. I think African and European experts in the fields of agriculture, ecology, nutrition, public policy, and global development. We focus on aggregating and curating evidence to influence policy and decision-making of the public sector and private sector in Africa. And so... It's our vision to ensure that we accelerate the achievement of agriculture transformation through the curation, dissemination of knowledge products. We host two forums each year, uh, in June and in December, where we engage with uh, the highest levels of governments across the continent to showcase briefs that are thematically aligned on various aspects necessary for agriculture transformation.
0: Thanks so much for that. I happen to read about the concept of hidden hunger. Now, I can afford to say concept, but for many people, this is a grim reality, right? For those of you who don't know, hidden hunger is one caused not by lack of food, but by food that lacks essential micronutrients necessary for growth and development. So, in your mind, what steps need to be taken to detect and then overcome the problem?
1: Yeah. Thank you very much. So, hidden hunger, yes, let's call it micronutrient deficiency. So when you eat, when you consume food, you have your macronutrients, carbs, protein, fats, and oils. And you have the micronutrients like zinc, iron, iodine, and vitamin A, for example. Around the world, it's not just an African challenge, it's a global challenge. But I would say, let's take iodine, for example. I think worldwide, about 2 billion people are iodine deficient. And one of the most consequential public policy initiatives to address this came in 1990 during the World Summit on Children, where a goal was set to eliminate iodine deficiency by 2010. Mm. At the time, about 25% of our households consumed iodized salt. This was a practice that at least was quite popular in, in Switzerland before it came to the United States in the 1920s and became back by a law in quite a few countries, the Philippines, Argentina, for example. Now, most people use salt in cooking, right? So yeah. from a public policy perspective, this was an externality, the iodine deficiency, and of course the medical toll that would take, not just on families, but on the community when people were deficient of, of iodine. But when the governments decided around the world to work with the private sector to fortify salt, what that meant was you created a low barrier of entry for people to improve their iodine uptake levels. Now, that's an idea that we've taken into other aspects of agriculture and food systems. So, another idea, brilliant idea, that was coined by a a scientist whom I worked with in my former place of employment called Steve Beebe, and he came up with the term biofortification. Now, biofortification is a means of naturally increasing the micronutrient levels of staple crops. The CGIR, the Global Consortium and International Agriculture Research, has a big program focused on fortifying quite a few staple crops with micronutrients. To date, I believe, about 290 varieties of 12 staple food crops have been released and tested in over 60 countries thanks to an army of scientists who are working on breeding these crops. So an example of this is the high zinc maize, the provitamin A cassava. So it's the yellow cassava. And these are ways of transforming the lives of people because micronutrient deficiency, unfortunately, when you look at the food, you may not see the nutrients, but you can certainly see the impact of micronutrient deficiency. Stunting, for example, yes, you see physically stunted people, but what you don't see is the impact on cognitive function. So some people would say, you know, stunted people are physically stunted. They're also mentally stunted. And stunted people, stunted futures, stunted economies. And so there is that sort of knock-on effect. And so we are trying to replace, where possible, staple foods with Biofortified fortified alternatives. And this has achieved success and we will continue to scale this across Africa and around the world.
0: I think very, very important uh, steps that are being taken. I want to talk about the 10th AGRS Summit. Now the theme is uh, Free Cities, Grow the Continent and this is to be hosted by Rwanda and the AGRF Partners Group. I know you've been busy with the organization of this event. What is this summit about? And can you tell us maybe three or four key takeaways that you expect from a summit?
1: Yeah, thank you. So we came up with the theme for this year's summit last year, incidentally, even before the the, the pandemic hit. But the theme is so prescient and aligned or so meaningful to what we're going through as a global body of, of humans today. The theme of the summit is Feed the Cities, Grow the Continent, Leveraging Urban Food Markets to Achieve Sustainable Food Systems in Africa. And what we're trying to do over the course of four days, from the 8th to the 11th of September, is have conversations aligned to resilience, nutrition and health, markets and trade, and of course, food systems. We feel that cities play a leading role in influencing and shaping agriculture systems, not just in Africa, but around the world. And we want to put particular focus and lens on these cities to see how they can be best positioned as engines of growth. Of course, we know that the rate of urbanization continues to increase across the continent. So we're seeing the emergence of even more cities. Now, what do we need to do as a global community to plan ahead and anticipate the future and don't let the future surprise us, so to speak? So how do we ensure that Africa's future is secure with people having access to affordable, accessible, healthy, safe, nutritious food. But also Africa not just being able to feed itself, but feeding the rest of the world. Africa really is and should be the world's food basket. Most of the arable land left in the world, untapped arable land, is in Africa. But even as we look at innovations in technology, we've seen some technologies that have moved us or decoupled agriculture and food production away from the soil, away from the land, Africa is the biggest and, you know, the fastest growing continent. So we need to make agriculture and food systems work on the continent. And so we picked the focus on cities specifically to ensure that we could use cities as livers for growth and transformation. And of course, with COVID-19 hitting us, we've all seen the impact of the restrictions of movement on people in urban areas. At least if you were in a rural area and you were growing your own food, then It wouldn't be much of a challenge to access food. But if you're in an urban area and you are restricted to your house or your home, then you realize really quickly how disconnected urban spaces are from food systems. And so how do we improve that? And how do we ensure that the public policy space can support the private entrepreneurs? I mean, we have have an army of brilliant, smart people working on business ideas, technologies, across the continent to ensure that we can feed ourselves and feed the rest of the world. But we really need all these groups of people to work together. We need the civil society organizations, we need governments, we need entrepreneurs, we need uh, donor and development partners to all work together because we share a common, common goal and common purpose. So the AGRF is creating the enabling environment or a platform for all these communities to come together and work together for a common purpose.
0: I want to talk about women-led businesses in Africa. So one of the stats I happened to read was in sub-Saharan Africa, women constitute the highest average agricultural labor force participation rate in the world. Yeah. And this is of more than 3% in many countries, especially in West Africa, according to the FAO. Do you think more needs to be done to empower women to get out there and lead businesses? And is the organization also playing a role in this?
1: Oh yes. So one of the thematic platforms that we have within the AGRF is Women in Agriculture Thematic Platform where we focus specifically on how we create the space for women-led entrepreneurship opportunities across the continent. One of our partners, the Africa Development Bank, set up the Affirmative Finance Action for Women in Africa. The acronym is AFAWA. All
0: right.
1: And AFAWA is looking to bridge the 42 billion financing gap uh, for African women across different value chains, including I think about $15 billion in agriculture alone. So women face a lot of challenges that's been documented. It's access to finance, the capacity of finance institutions to price their risks and understand their clients and know their customers. It's creating that enabling business environment, the legal and regulatory frameworks that sometimes hamper uh, women's full participation in private entrepreneurship. So through the AGRF, we bring all these partners together to ensure that we enable women entrepreneurs to thrive.
0: Super. (laughs) And that's a short answer for what you're doing, but I think something about gender empowerment, really, it's such an important thing because in India, we used to have this, old saying you know you educate a girl child and that's all you need and I think it's the same principle where you empower women and then everything around in the community thrives because women are so focused on that's right right and I know it's very cliche at some level but I really really believe in that
1: yes it might be cliche but I don't think it's been proven wrong not once <laughs> yeah. where if you educate a woman you educate the world yeah not once has that been proven wrong. And within the AGRF, we also have our agri-finance and SME investment thematic platform where we have an agri-business deal room focused exclusively on SMEs. That's another challenge. So sort of allied to this wider context of women's access to finance and entrepreneurship opportunities is a specific focus on SMEs. SMEs form the backbone of economic transformation across the continent and quite literally around the world. And so within the agribusiness deal room, what we're doing is working directly with governments as a broker of uh, bringing on ideas. So we have people who propose agribusiness opportunities and then we connect them to finance. And we're doing more of that. And we, we intend to certainly focus more on women through the Women in Agriculture uh, thematic platform of the EGRF. It
0: sounds like a wonderful initiative. So you've talked about governments quite a lot. You talked about researching and policies. So what role does politics and policy play in this whole scenario? And how much more does the government need to do? And I'm saying government, when I mean governments, really across the continent, need to do to help your organization and others like you?
1: Yes. So everything we do that involves human interaction is political, right? So politics is the art of persuasion. Ultimately, it's the (laughs) art of persuasion. So everything that we do, Ultimately, we need human beings to make a decision, whether it's you want entrepreneurs to take risks and come up with new business ideas in agriculture, or you want to influence public policies for governments to create the enabling environment, either to support entrepreneurs to thrive or for governments to create programs to support people through social interventions. Either way, you're ultimately coming down to persuading people to make decisions. So I'm of the evidence-based school and I'm a scientist. And so throughout my career, I've worked sort of straddling the divide between science and communication. And I think both really need to be married. Scientists need to be better communicators and those in communication need to understand science. And that's politics. We need scientists to be more political and we we need our politicians to be more scientific. We do that every day. I think that's ultimately why we're trying to bring everybody under the same umbrella, because the further we can get people to interact and understand the nuances of how everyone else works, the easier we can create these opportunities for collaboration.
0: I think this theme of scientists becoming better communicators is something that I've heard throughout, and I think, the last 15 plus episodes, right? It's just about getting somebody who is in a position of power to understand what the implications are of decisions that they're going to be taking. Yeah. And I think that the reverse also what you mentioned about politicians saying that we understand and then having the scientific evidence as backup, it plays such an important role, and especially because they're affecting futures, right? You're taking governmental decisions, which means you're affecting futures of people just like you and me. We are living our lives, but we are being affected by those decisions. So it's a very, very valid point that you're making. You discussed COVID quite a bit, but I like this line you said in a recent interview. You said Africa will not wilt in the face of this pandemic, and that really struck something in me. It really gave me hope. And you talked briefly about COVID affecting food security. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's steps kind going to need to be taken to prevent the situation from getting worse. If what happens in the next, hopefully never, pandemic comes along?
1: Yes. Well, I am confident that Africa will not wilt in the face of, of the pandemic. And that's because, I mean, I base my faith in the fact that I know people are working day and night to ensure that this doesn't happen. Now, we have a lot of brilliant people working in public sector, working in research, working in private entrepreneurship. So I'll give you an example of of what we're doing specifically about COVID-19. Yes, please. So in Kenya, AGRA has set up a war room, a COVID-19 war room, to support the government of Kenya to aggregate information, so ensuring that the government has near real-time information to make improved decisions, but also improving the efficiency of deploying resources. So what's the best way to spend your money now? And how do we invest? Which value chains do we focus on? What technologies do we deploy? At what points of the value chain? Who do we support? Where, how, why? It's really comprehensively about improving decision-making. So in Kenya, that's happening through the support of partners funded by the partners within the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, AGRA, But also across the continent, you've seen the private sector rise up in ways that have surprised me. In Nigeria, for example, where we don't have any major social safety net program, we saw the emergence of a private sector-led food distribution program called GiveFood.ng. And what they did was they set up a platform where people could contribute funds, but then working with the major FMCGs fast-moving consumer goods companies to purchase. So you're you're leveraging market systems. So you're not creating competition with existing market systems. You're leveraging market systems and optimizing them to ensure that you can improve the distribution channels of food. Nigeria, of course, is also trying to improve its digital identification system, which is welcome, because I think the, the easier it is to know where people are the easier it is to target people as well. Now, in Kenya, one of the brilliant things that the government did was suspend the fees, transaction fees for mobile money below 1,000 shillings. And what that did was create the incentive for people to do more transactions at that level. And so when you have a slowing down of productivity, what you don't want to do is then force people to spend less. I mean, yes, you don't want people to go broke, but you don't want to create a disincentive, so to speak, for people not to carry on with economic activities. And so there are all these creative ideas that are coming out and emerging. And I think the more we can share, they say the internet has made the world a global village now, the more we can share these ideas, other parts of the continent will lean on and learn from each other and create this race to the top. So I'm excited about the prospects for Africa.
0: Which brings me perfectly into my next question, and I hope it's not too controversial. But I would love to hear from you about looking towards Africa. You've already given me a couple of examples for innovation in sectors from agriculture to technology. Now, as a globalized world, we always kind of focus on the West to get answers to our questions. What needs to change in order for the world to see Africa as the powerhouse that it is or could become?
1: That's an interesting question maybe nothing needs to change. I don't think it's any African or, or Africa in an abstract sense needs to do anything to get people to change their opinion of the continent. Africa will continue to thrive. Africa will continue on its journey to thrive. Yes, there are lots of challenges across the continent, but you can begin to see the green shoots of innovation that just blows you away. We're seeing opportunities now. When I talk to people about mobile money, I know it's, it's an over-egged example. But the prospects of mobile money, a digital economy, it's just mind-boggling. So I've lived in Nairobi for four years, and I could tell you that since the start of this year, I haven't held a single physical note of cash in wow. my hand. Wow. <laughs> All my transactions have been on my mobile phone, and I don't think any other country around the world can claim to be this integrated with a mobile money system. Now, that's just one example, and that's the MPESA mobile money system in Kenya. Now, I talked about the, the innovations that we've seen with off-grid cold storage. What we're going to see, I would say, in the coming years in Africa will be innovations in off-grid power, and that is going to be a game changer. So I don't think the future of Africa is in the legacy grid, uh, high-cost, billion, multi-billion-dollar energy-producing systems. The future is really in off-grid, mini-grid systems that will be proliferating all parts of the continent, in rural areas, urban areas. Once people have access to power, then you open up the doors of, I would say, immense possibility. So let's keep an eye out for that. You already have that vibrant entrepreneurial spirit across the continent. This is the Africa that produced Elon Musk, I mean, as much as the United States would like to claim him, (laughs) Elon Musk is African and and we'll continue to claim him. But the Africans in Africa are investing in creating uh, new ways of logistics, transportation. I mean, look at startups such as Kobo 360 and Lorry Systems that are improving the efficiency of logistics and transportation. So we have the foundational technologies that we will need to overcome, and once we overcome those... The acceleration is going to be profound. But I would say watch out for innovations in power. That's the big game changer coming
0: up. We will. We definitely will. So my last question really to you is, and I, I don't know whether you want to aim this as individuals or governments or where you want to do this, but what would your call of action be? You've already described climate change as an existential threat to all of humanity. So what would you say as a call of action? What would you say to our listeners?
1: Thank you very much. I would say two words, have faith. Because for me, my career so far has been one of faith. I've achieved the things I have because I had faith. And the way I I see faith is it's the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things not seen. But you see, once you have faith, that can't be taken away from you. Faith gives you the opportunity and the ability to create the impossible, to create the unknown, to create what doesn't exist and bring your imagination to life and to reality. So that for me would be the charge to everyone. And I think it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're working in public sector, research, academia, entrepreneurship, civil society, wherever you are, whatever sector of society you are, you can make a difference, but you need to have faith.
0: Thanks so much for your fabulous insights, Debussy. I think all our listeners, and me included, definitely have learned so much about what is happening within agriculture in Africa and so much more as well. So thanks so much for your time. You really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.